You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Take it away, shall I? <laughs> uh, well, good afternoon, and thank you all for joining us for our Saturday Art Speak series. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Pamela Chang. I'm the Art Rental and Sales Gallery Assistant. And with me today, I have Maureen Bowles, who is the Acquisitions Assistant in Curatorial Affairs and formerly the Assistant for the Contemporary Department. Beside her, we have Jennifer Bogle, who is the Art Rental and Sales Gallery uh, Coordinator and also a former Assistant in the Contemporary Department. And to my right, I have Shirley Hudson-Hill, who is one of the Interpretive Planners at the AGO. So just to give you a sense of our agenda today, we're going to uh, first discuss the acquisitions process with Maureen and Jennifer, uh, and then Shirley will be speaking about interpreting the works of contemporary art, which will take about 30 minutes or so, and then we'll open the floor to questions from you. So just to give you a bit of background about our Art Speak series, uh, it's a lecture series that we began in March of this year, uh, which ties into the exhibitions just to give a bit more in-depth information. Each discussion includes uh, key individuals who can speak about the exhibition, the artworks, and the artists involved to provide more information. So contemporary art is the uh, highlight of this one. It's paralleling the permanent collection of the AGO, so all of the artists that are in this exhibition also have works in the contemporary department of the AGO. Uh, the definition and the timeline of contemporary art is varied depending on who you speak to. At the Art Gallery of Ontario, the Contemporary Department and Contemporary Curatorial Committee are responsible for American art after 1945, European art after 1960, and contemporary and photography, or sorry, Canadian art and photography after 1985. Uh, for most public galleries, it's about the last 25 years or so, I think. Uh, the AGO website says that, quote, contemporary art connects us to the world in which we live. Through the art of today, the past can be interpreted the present made tangible, and the future envisioned. Contemporary art provokes opinions and pushes the limits of our imaginations." End quote. Uh, so to get started, I'd just like to introduce you a bit more to our guests. Uh, Maureen Bowles uh, has been with the AGO for about 14 years. She came on board as a visitor services rep during the Barnes exhibition, and then she moved to a group sales to be a group sales officer and program registration and for the last eight years has been an administrative assistant in the contemporary curatorial department. Um, yes. <laughs> as an admin assistant, she is responsible for all the paperwork related to acquisitions, including shippings, grants, loans, conditional reports, donor relations, and the Canadian Cultural Property Export Review Board applications. Um, to her left is Jennifer Bogle, who, like I said, is the current coordinator of Art Rental and Sales Gallery. She was previously the assistant in the Photography gallery, photography Curatorial Department. And prior to joining the AGO, Jennifer worked with many of Toronto's top galleries, such as Boshi Gallery and Feely Fine Art. And to my right, Shirley Hudson is an interpretive planner at the, at the AGO. Um, as an interpretive planner, she is responsible for the visitor experience of exhibitions, working with uh, curators, project managers, and designers to plan and develop exhibitions. Prior to joining the AGO, Shirley was a consultant with the international museum planning firm, Lord Cultural Resources, and has also held positions with the National Museum of Ireland in Dublin and the Ontario Science Centre in Toronto. She has um, a Master's of Museum Studies from the University of Toronto and has most recently published in the Journal of Museum Education. 
Um, so first, I'd like to start by asking um, Jennifer and Maureen if you can speak a bit about how works are acquired by the AGO, uh, whether through gift and donation or if works are purchased. Well, it's, um, it's definitely a, a bit of both, donated and purchased, but mostly donations. Um, it's mostly donations. Um, as in most institutions within Canada, there's a very tiny budget for purchases, but it does happen, and some donors do give funds purposely for purchases. Um, and generally speaking, the way it starts, um, sometimes there are random, um, so we are randomly approached by different people within, um, within the country, really, that have a particular work that they want to donate, but often there is a relationship between the donors and the curators, and um, that's developed over years, and they get to know each other's collecting tastes. And um, so once there's a work um, or works identified um, by the curator as it would be a, you know, a good fit for the collection, it, the first process is an internal review called the Collection Forum. And that makes up um, most, of the, most of the curatorial department um, and some of the exhibitions department. And that's an internal discussion just to speak about the work and how it would fit into the collection and whether um, they can see some connections with existing works in different departments. And, any kind of um, programming if it, potential. Yeah, if it meets the mandate and the collecting priorities of the gallery and specifically the individual um, curatorial departments. They each have their own mandate, what they're seeking to find, what they're hoping to acquire. Um, after, after the transformation AGO, there was a, um, a rather lengthy and in-depth um, review by each of the departments on the, the collections that we already had, uh, identifying redundancies, um, um, gaps, goals to build a collection in the different departments. So now when we're approached by uh, a prospective donor, the curators consider whether or not that particular work will fit, uh, address one of the concerns that they had previously identified. I have, a, I have a good example of that. Mm -hmm. For example, <laughs> the European department for the longest time did not have a single work in the collection by a woman. Uh, not so. The, this is the European collection. So we're talking works uh, largely prior to the 20th century. So they made that a priority. That's an example of mm -hmm. one of their collecting priorities. And um, one of the the sole work is on display right now on level one, which is. <laughs> it's actually it. The name is it is an artist in her studio, and it's a self portrait. Her name is escaping me, but she's sitting in her artist studio. It's quite beautiful. Perfect. Yeah. So once it's agreed upon within the institution that they would, it would be a good fit for the institution to take on this donation, um, that that work is then presented by the curator um, to that depart that curatorial department's acquisitions committee. So each there are now four curatorial departments. Um, there's modern and contemporary is one department, photography, European, and Canadian, and so that. Those committees are made up of about 10 to 12 people that generally are academics in the field, prominent artists in the field. Um, as collectors, in, collectors in the city and chaired by a member of um, the AGO's board of trustees. So uh, yeah, made, made up about eight, yeah, eight to 10 people. Mm -hmm. And <coughs> excuse me, and so the work is presented at that committee meeting. Um, with a justification by the curator that would have been circulated in advance of the meeting so that all of the members um, are informed about what the work is and why that curator feels that it's a good fit for the collection. 
and then it's voted on. Um, and once it's approved, then there is a, a further process. Um, at that committee meeting, that gift is presented as either a straight gift or a gift that needs to go through CPERB, which was mentioned earlier as the um, Canadian Cultural Property Export Review Board. <laughs> <laughs> which is Otherwise known as C just plain CPERB. Mm -hmm. <laughs> which exists in Ottawa. It's part of uh, Heritage Canada. And it was put in place to um, identify significant gifts to um, not-for-profit institutions within Canada. Um, and once that board certifies that, there's a, it's a very, it's like a manuscript of uh, an application. Um, and once that's certified by that board, that donor can claim a higher percentage of their tax receipt that they receive from that gift. So it, it encourages collectors and donors to donate significant works to, rather than, you know, their backlog of work that they got from their grandmother 30 years ago. So it's, it's an incentive to build stronger collections. So if it's a straight gift, it's relatively straightforward. It's, um, there's an appraisal done to identify the exact value, and then um, and, you know the transferring of the title, and it's relatively straightforward and happens quickly. Oftentimes, it, the, the straight gifts are um, the least complicated of, of all of the donating practices. The straight gift, oftentimes the, the donor just wants the gallery to, to own it and they're not going to go through the whole appraisal process. It's generally for works under sort of $5,000. They just want to make sure that this particular loved piece gets into the collection. Um, uh, if, if it's something that's of a, of a greater value, then the whole process, the surprisingly lengthy process kicks in of, um, as Jennifer already said, the internal review of, with the collection forum and then the uh, curatorial committees um, that require the justifications by the curators. And also you didn't mention the fact that the works are already um, gone through our conservation department mm -hmm. because we don't take things that are not in um, a good solid and, and, and well uh, stable state. Also, um, they need to be photographed and well documented. And before it even gets to CPERB, there needs to be appraisals done. Um, and two appraisals if the value of the work is higher than $20,000. Um, those take about 12 weeks from beginning to, so all of that work is leading up to sending the material to the appraisers. When the appraisals come back, um, the values are reviewed between the curators and the donors, and if the donor believes that it's an accurate valuation of that work, then they'll say, yes, please send my application for certification of cultural property off to CPERB in Ottawa, and um, then, you know, we all cross our fingers and hope for the best, <laughs> because um, the... CPERB organization has become increasingly um, exacting in what they um, will issue certification for. They need a great deal of documentation from the appraisers to back up the value. Um, lots of comparables, sort of like real estate, right? Which they, is difficult because a lot of works that come through have no comparables. So it can be a challenging It's a challenging process to get a, a solid appraisal for the, for the works. And then there, you know, the mystery happens there in Ottawa, and then they'll come back and tell us whether or not they agree that the, the value assigned by the um, appraisers is um, valid, at which point the donor will receive a letter 
from CPERB saying that indeed it, it has met the criteria to be certified as a cultural property and the AGO receives a copy of that same letter and then the donor gets a tax receipt from our development department for in the value that CPERB has said. And many times it's exactly the same. Of late they have found the determinations to be slightly lower. Um, and then that can be appealed. Tends, whether that's the yeah, exact. it depends on it depends on the the value. I mean, it's it's a as I said, it's a really lengthy process, and you know, depends on the the donor's goals. So you've spoken a lot about gifts. Can you talk about works that may have been purchased um, using funds or just through the AGO's own acquisition funds? Okay. There are some. Um, Often, if, if it's a purchase, it's relatively, it can be relatively straightforward. You know, the, the curator has identified um, filling in a gap within the collection. Um, uh, sometimes there are, it's rare, but there are some funds put in place by some donors that have some conditions attached to it. Um, there has been a recent one that has, um, there's funds put in place to acquire work that also has to, part of those funds have to go towards programming surrounding that acquisition so that the work doesn't just come into the, the gallery and live in the sub vaults for, you know, however long. Um, the work has to be a part of the programming at the gallery. Um, so that doesn't happen that often, but often, you know, that is, can be the case. And as Maureen was saying earlier, sometimes um, the curator will be sensitive to the funds donated by a certain donor and what their collecting interests are and where their passions lie. And so they try to reflect um, collecting work with those funds that um, would be of interest to that particular donor. Um. The, the AGO has um, a budgets for uh, purchases acquired by either s sort of sm uh, smaller amounts that are just individual donations. People just want value the art gallery and say I'd, li I'd like to give you this sum of money to purchase whatever you so choose. There's also um, major donors who establish um, foundation funds in their name um, and that's all managed you know at a level higher than uh, I'm um, involved in um, and then those funds generate income to purchase works on a yearly basis um, there's also money that can be uh, money that can be applied for from the Canada Council um, for the Arts Acquisition Assistance Grant for institutions, and each year they offer thirty thousand um, dollars per. You know, I'm not exactly sure how much they have in the grand pool, but each institution can apply for a maximum of thirty thousand dollars, and then that money has to be matched by internal funds, and so you've got you know at least sixty thousand dollars to purchase works. Over the last few years, we bought things at the at Art Toronto the contemporary department did at least, and um, um, it has to be a Canadian artist, you know, it has to be um, a relatively new work. Um, there's a few criteria, but not quite as many as CPER. And Art Toronto is coming up in two weeks and we will be there, so make sure will you, you, uh, make sure you come by <laughs> our booth. Um, and Susie Lake, the work that's just um, to my right here, is um, one of the artists that was actually purchased by the AGO last year. And Ed Pian, across the way, um, was purchased, a work similar to that, but on a larger scale, was purchased at Art Toronto with Canada Council money two years ago? Yeah. Two, th two years ago. So you ladies have already kind of talked a bit about the criteria for 
requiring work based on filling gaps um, in the mandate or in the collection of the AGO. So can you speak about any of the artists that we have included in our show? We've just touched on two, but any of the other artists and how they were acquired? I know, Maureen, you had one you wanted to speak about. Um, I have one in particular um, that that I kind of participated in, not the purchase of or you know conceiving of the work or anything <laughs> like that, but perhaps the maintenance of um, Michael Lexier's work and its title. I'm going to say it correctly. It's called "A Work of Art in the Form of a Quantity of Coins Equal to the Number of Months of the Statistical Life Expectancy of a Child Born January 6, 1995," and the work was made in 1995 and it consists of 906 custom minted copper coins. Each of them are they're about like this, like say the size of a loony or a toonie, and um, they're displayed in two metal document boxes. The first box um, has um, a rose so that the, the coins stay in columns very concisely and neatly, and the second box began empty, but each month on the, er, each month, on the sixth of each month, at noon, if possible, um, um, one coin it sequentially is transferred from the full box to the other box um, with bare hands, no no cotton gloves, nothing, um, because it is the, his uh, desire that the coins like show the appearance of being touched. So um, it, it's not as precious as um, other arts, artworks. <laughs> and um, when I was at the, uh, in the contemporary department as the administrative assistant there, I would take appointments from the public to, uh, to transfer the coin on the sixth of each month. <laughs> it was really quite a privilege. <laughs> I, I loved it. I was so fond of this work. I, it felt like my friend, like a person. And indeed it's meant to. And. Um, People would be quite moved by the transferring of the coin. I think that they feel connected to the institution because it's such a lengthy thing. They feel um, connected to the piece. Um, we had, or I had whole families sign up to transfer the coin in the month of their birthday. Had people take photographs of themselves transferring the coin. Um, I did it an awful lot myself, so I feel kind of comfortable, like familiar with it too. And if there was nobody signed up and I'd done it for a few months in a row, um, I would go around the contemporary galleries and find like a group of teenagers who were, you know, poking around and not knowing what to do with themselves. <laughs> say, do you want to do this? This is a thing that needs to happen. Do you want to do it? And they're like, oh, you know, and then and give them a little piece of paper explaining, explaining the work. And I think it was um, a nice sort of exercise in bridge building for people who might not feel comfortable at the gallery. I just love this thing. I love, love, love it. And just as some context, this is Michael Alexier's work behind us, as well as the arrow above the Barbara Aspen that's just around the corner here. So yeah, he wrote that he th thinks of it as a, as a rite of passage, and it addresses the notion of aging. Didn't you say somebody was moved to tears? Yeah, some one woman, yeah, yeah. It felt just really touched that she was part of it. I don't I'm not going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> um, just as Jennifer was uh, mentioning earlier, the curators provide a justification for why they want to purchase the works. So I'm just going to speak a little bit about a few of the artists in our show and, and why the work by them was acquired um, to the AGO. Um, the work by Ed Pian, they said that um, 
the ambitiously scaled works of paper, um, it really fit in with other works that they had in the collection, uh, two by Susanna Heller and one by Annie Putaguk. Um, and the AGO is also endeavoring to enhance its holdings of art by leading Toronto artists. And that came up over a few of the artists, actually, that I looked at. Um, Susie Lake, that was one of the reasons that they acquired her work, um, and Sherry Boyle as well. So that's really interesting. And they also do um, a series right now called Toronto Now that they have in the Young Gallery that changes every few months, three, every three months, um, where, again, it's, they're bringing in current Toronto artists to put in an installation, which I think is really great. Um, with Susie Lake, similar, I think, to what you were saying um, with the European collection, uh, with her, they want to basically build a collection which best represents her career and the contribution of her as an important artist in the second half of the 20th century. Um, in 2009, the Canadian Curatorial Committee approved the collecting priorities for the Canadian Department, one of which was to include the acquisition of major works of art by women artists in order to increase their representation in the collection. So I think that's really important as well. Um, with Sherry Boyle, whose work is just on the pillar between our two cabinets here, um, I guess during transformation they actually commissioned her to produce um, some works that were going to be placed in the European gallery, I believe mm -hmm. it was, mm -hmm. to reflect on um, works in there. So they, uh, it says that they were prompted by, the two works were prompted by an invitation to create porcelain sculptures that respond to the late Baroque Italian bronze statues in the collection of the AGO. So again, I think that was really great when they reopened after transformation, they were trying to look at art in a bit of a different way and place contemporary art in, in context, I guess, with, with um, international art and with art of different periods. So I think it was really great that they, they were able to commission a Toronto artist to, to reflect from the gallery in that sense. Um, and Sherry has a show on right now at yeah. the AGO. She was a winner of the um, Gershon Iskowitz Prize last year and along with winning that um, she, along with that, came a show at the AGO, and so that's up currently. It's a fantastic show. And then just one other one I wanted to speak about. Um, right when you walk in our gallery, we've got the plasma screen there with showing the video of um, Kelly Richardson's Twilight Avenger. And this is uh, an edition of five, one of which is actually belongs um, in the AGO. Yeah. Um, and they were saying that uh, this work has also been purchased by the Albright Knox Museum and the Hirschhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden. So I think that was kind of interesting that one of their justifications was that these other high-profile galleries had also purchased the work. So I thought, I guess it puts it in context that they're looking to see what other galleries are acquiring as well. Um, this was the first work by Richardson that was in the collection of the AGO, which they were, uh, and it's to round out the growing representation again of Toronto artists, um, and also augmented their small but significant collection of projected video works, mm -hmm. uh, which were included by Mark Lewis, who was the Re Venice Biennale representative last year. And I think that Michelle Jakes, the um, Associate Curator of Contemporary Art, is a real champion of works by Canadian artists, and particularly new media. And she is also the curator behind the Toronto Now series yes. as well. And that particular piece was also a part of um, Storytellers, was it? No, no Sculpture sorry. is Time. Sculpture is Time, that's right. Which was about a year ago? This year, earlier this earlier year, this January year. until August. So it's a fairly recent acquisition mm -hmm. piece. Yes. Um, I don't know if any of you are able to speak um, a little bit about um, the shift in collecting patterns from different curators. I'm not sure if you were there when, when Jessica was there or... I was when Jessica Bradley yes. um, was there. She now has um, Jessica Bradley Art and Projects. Mm -hmm. um, Did you notice a change at all, I guess, between her and, and David? Or? 
you know, I'm not sure that I would be able to identify specifically that, I mean, they each had their, um, their interests. I can say that generally, institutionally, we are acquiring um, uh, higher profile works, but fewer works. Okay. That's very interesting. Um, Louisa Buck, who is a, a British art critic and contemporary art correspondent for the art newspaper, um, has said, quote, the traditional role of the publicly funded gallery is to present the work of artists for the enjoyment and enlightenment of the public. Um, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Shirley Hudson-Hill, who's just going to speak a bit about um, the joys and challenges of interpreting contemporary art. Good afternoon, everyone. As Pamela said, my name is Shirley Hudson-Hill, and I'm an interpretive planner at the Art Gallery of Ontario. Um, because I'm an interpretive planner, I have brought along some visual aids <laughs> I just can't resist. So if you look over here, you'll be able to see some images that not only illustrate some of the things that I'll be talking about, but also pick up on some of the things that my colleagues have also mentioned here today. Um, now, you may be asking yourself, what the heck is an interpretive planner? And uh, an interpretive planner is a, uh, an individual who represents the visitor in the exhibition planning process. So I work closely with curators, exhibition designers, project managers to uh, communicate curatorial ideas in a way that is meaningful and engaging for AGO visitors. So what does that look like day to day? Uh, it includes everything from writing text panels and labels, uh, identifying images, and working with our, our AGO media producers to develop audio and video strategies for gallery spaces. I also conduct visitor research, which measures um, the success of our exhibitions. Yeah, the success, have we achieved our, the goals that we set out to achieve um, with the visitor experience in exhibitions? So we can learn from each exhibition and improve with with the next one. So interpreting contemporary art generally, uh, but specifically working with the AGO's contemporary art collection, presents many unique opportunities and challenges. Uh, contemporary art is, uh, well it can be some of the gallery's most challenging and visitors often find the works puzzling at best and at worst perhaps a bit frustrating. And it's my job uh, to help break down those barriers and offer visitors ways that they can connect with art and art making, whether it's uh, through text, AV, uh, hands-on activities. So I brought along an example today. Um, it's my favorite example, <laughs> although we don't have any works by Jim Dine on display here in Art Rental. Um, this is Jim Dine, Black Bathroom Number no. 2 uh, from 1962. It was displayed as part of uh, our reinstallation, our opening reinstallation gamut on level 4 in the Contemporary Tower. Um, so when I first started at the AGO in 2006, I had to get up to speed rather quickly on the collection. And um, so I started talking to everyone I could talk to. Maureen was a great help to me, curators, designers, but also people who work on the front lines, visitor services, uh, security guards who we call PSOs, uh, because they're the eyes and the ears of the institution. And so I heard it through the grapevine that this was perhaps the most hated work at the AGO. <laughs> 
So, when thinking about how to interpret uh, this for visitors, I developed a strategy uh, that I call provocations. So they're provocation labels. And the whole idea behind that is, is that people are often, they're in art museums and art galleries and they might have questions but feel uncomfortable expressing those questions. So we wanted to put the most obvious questions on, on the table, right there on the label, so visitors would see the questions and think, oh, maybe I'm not alone in thinking that. So for the case of the Jim Dine, I'll just show you the image again. You can see it's a basin attached to a large canvas. Um, the label for this work read, how is this bathroom sink art? And so we talked a little bit, I won't read you the label, but we're, we talked about how sometimes seeing things, ordinary objects that you'd see in your own home can be a bit strange, a bit surprising. But in our research, so I worked closely with the curator, we discovered that Jim Dine had actually, his family had owned a hardware store. And he had spent hours working in that hardware store, staring at all these beautiful, ordinary objects and finding the beauty in them. So um, and we said on the label, he sees them as a vocabulary of feelings. So just by sharing those kind of um, tidbits with the visitor, I think it opens a window and a way of understanding and perhaps not being quite as intimidated. So I think one of the best aspects of working with contemporary art, especially in a city as dynamic as Toronto, is the opportunity to work with living artists and then in turn sharing those encounters with the public. Um, I just couldn't resist bringing this beautiful image of the Ed Pian that was installed when we reopened in 2008 for Transformation AGO on the fifth floor. You can see it's actually made of a reflective material, so it actually did, when light hit it, shine in that way. Cut paper is absolutely stunning. Um, Toronto artists are um, incredibly generous, and myself, curators, other interpretive planners have all been very fortunate enough to work with several artists over the years, developing um, shows, interpretive strategies that really help visitors deeply engage with the work. So uh, picking up on some of the wonderful works on display here at Art Rental, uh, I brought a few images. This is actually, this is an exhibition uh, still on now in the Signey Eaton Gallery on uh, level two of the AGO, and it's called Through the Lens of Coach House Press. And we invited many artists, but pictured here is Barbara Aspen, working with uh, AGO Canadian curator, uh, Georgiana Ulyarik. And um, Barbara Aspen, incredible artist. I also had her, I invited her in, and she recorded an audio commentary for me uh, for the photography galleries as well. So very generous artist. Those are the two right around the corner here, believe, beneath the arrow. Called Wonderland, just uh, just around this corner right here. Uh, I think we mentioned we might have mentioned the show Beautiful Fictions. We were talking about it before everyone got here, <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about it again. I sure. like it. So uh, Beautiful Fictions actually featured a few artists that are also on dis uh, are also on display here. Uh, it was it was a show on the fifth floor of the Vivian and David Campbell. Um, Vivian and David Campbell Contemporary Art Center. Yeah, Contemporary Art Center. Yes, sorry. That's it. I'll get it right. <laughs> we can edit the audio <laughs> podcast of this later. <laughs> so this is a uh, level five of the Vivian and David Campbell Contemporary Art Center. We like which we know internally as the Contemporary Tower. 
and it featured the works of uh, Susie Lake, who this was one work that we had on display called On Stage, where she modeled, she was basically mimicking catalog models, and it's, it's an ongoing slideshow, and she redeveloped it in 1996, that's why the, the year of the work is 1972 to 1996, she adapted the technology um, to more current projector technology, and uh, it was all commentary on, on female identity and, um, and beauty, a really fabulous work. Um, but Susie Lake was also invited by the Canadian uh, team to provide insight into what it was like for, what is it like an artist, not only an artist working in their studio, but a, a female artist working in her studio. And on the second floor of the EGO, just off the Canadian salon, is a small room all about process. And they thought, and it's historical works mostly, but the Canadian theme thought, wouldn't it be interesting if we interviewed a, a practicing local artist about her practice and working in the studio? And Susie Lake was generous enough to volunteer. And you can watch the, those videos today uh, up in the Clarkson in the studio. And here she is working away in her studio. There are videos, but I have stills here. As we mentioned, uh, earlier this year, on, also on Level 5, was an exhibition called Sculpture is Time. Uh, it, featured, it featured the Kelly Richardson, that amazing Twilight Avenger uh, media piece, which I was absolutely in love with. But it, it also featured another work by Micah Lexier uh, called 39 Balls. And this is a work that he created when he was 39 years old. And uh, there's one wall that, or one ball for every year of his life up to that point. And um, I won't say very much because I just wanted to wrap up by, um, by showing you a video that working again with AGO media producers, uh, we were able to develop. And uh, Michael was very generous. He came in, we interviewed him and he told us more about the work. And you can actually even see the little video station there behind the work. It was heavily used by visitors. And I think that's um, another aspect that sometimes if you can, sometimes you see a contemporary artwork and it's just the sum of its parts. But once you get to know the artist, maybe even like Maureen uh, was revealing, get involved with the work itself, then you start to form personal connections and actually realize that these just aren't um, canvases or you know, pieces of metal or um, drawings, that there are actual real people and, real, and very interesting, fascinating, thoughtful artists, faces, neighbors behind these works. So, and this video that if, if, uh, if you want to share it with your friends or watch it again or watch any of our other artist interviews, they're available on our website, uh, www.ago.net, our blog, www.artmatters.ca, and our YouTube channel. So uh, here, without further ado, I'm going to let Micah do the talking. So I'd like to open the floor now if anybody has any questions they'd like to ask about anything that was covered or maybe something that wasn't covered that you might be interested in.
value of success of So the question was asking about measuring success and whether that's strictly monetary. No, in fact, I do not measure that. There's a whole other echelon <laughs> of people who, who measure that kind of success. And it's a great question because as we're developing exhibitions, we create documents called interpretive plans. And interpretive plans are essentially roadmaps. So everyone on the team is on the same page. I work closely with curators and we identify what the big idea of the show is, what the main ideas and issues that we want to communicate are with the show. And then I develop visitor outcomes, which are basically the goals of the show and the visitor experience. So um, when I go back to do visitor research, uh, I use a variety of methods to uh, questionnaires, for example. We also do time tracking because the amount of time someone spends in it, an exhibition is a measure of engagement with that exhibition. And um, we, we measure success according to did we achieve the visitor outcomes. And that's not often black or white, that's often gradations. So oftentimes I'm experimenting with new interpretive strategies and so sometimes just actually learning from the research I do on those interpretive strategies is success. We're, test we're actually testing this right now. If you go to the AGO today, you might actually have a student from U of T asking you questions about the Contemporary Tower. Exhibitions in the Contemporary Tower change every four to eight months. And so to date, so since opening, uh, reopening in November 2008, for example, um, the fifth floor has had a rigorous changeover, so uh, we've had the opening gambit, which included, as you say, the Gerhard Richter room. And then we had Beautiful Fictions, and then Sculpture is Time, and currently Julian Schnabel, which just opened last month. And so uh, there's a quite, uh, I, I get- All major, major shows. Major shows. Major. So- I took the whole floor. I, I think the old AGO, one of the things was that the art did not change enough. So those contemporary, maybe some of you, I, I've only lived in Toronto 10 years, um, but maybe some of you who are long-standing fans of the Art Gallery of Ontario might remember going and seeing the same the hamburger. works. Yeah, Klaus <laughs> Oldenburger, the, yeah. the floor burger, yeah. again and Lots again. Lots to talk about whether or not that was going to, sh to come out of um, conservation for the reopening, and you might remember it did not. It, it didn't. There are new favorites. There are new favorites. new favorites now. So that doesn't mean that the, the Richters won't come back. They may. It, it also has, I guess, it's there, there's a combination of the exhibition planning, um, like the, the timing of the major shows compared to the smaller ones, and also um, conservation issues. I mean, things can really only stay, particularly works on paper, much shorter periods of time. And now there's all this light, too, in the, in the galleries, which is magnificent as a visitor, 
but also needs to be um, carefully monitored from a conservation point of view. How many years in advance do we plan exhibitions? It ranges uh, the wildly. So <laughs> I think it goes from five years in advance, six For years. The big ones, and then Michelle Jakes is running exhibitions every three months. So she only plans, you know, two out, right? So. So sometimes, for example, I'm called in an exhibition and I have up to a year to work on it. Um, but sometimes I've, I've, I have, there have been examples where I've been called in uh, eight weeks in advance. So it also, it's also dependent on whether or not the work is being, or the exhibition is being, um, um, uh, pardon, toured? No, I was going to say um, initiated by the AGO or whether it's a touring show. Mm -hmm. And it may there just may be a time in the schedule where it fits mm -hmm. for our institution. Um, I know that, I mean, I'm not making those decisions, but I can tell you th these are the things that the decisions are based on. Yeah. That's all for our questions, and I'd just like to uh, thank these ladies again for uh, joining us on Saturday and uh, ask everyone to give them a warm round of applause. <laughs> And they'll be available for a few more minutes if any of you wanted to come up and ask anything. So thank you all for uh, attending today. Thank you for listening to this Art Guy of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at agonet slash talks.